The Tom Woods Show, episode 1172. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, you know as well as I do, we are taught to display a superstitious reverence toward the U.S. presidents who look down upon you from the wall of your classroom. Well, nuts to that. Learn the real history of the presidents through my free course on the subject over at freehistorycourse.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. We're talking about the police today. And as libertarians, we have plenty to say about the police. And as Rothbardian libertarians, we have still more to say. What should the system look like and what are some of the problems with the monopoly government provision of policing services? We would need police services one way or another, but what would they look like if they were not provided by a coercive monopoly? That's the kind of question I want to run by our guest today, and that's Tate Fegley, who is a 2018 Mises Institute fellow. He won the Grant Aldrich Graduate Student Essay Prize at the Austrian Economics Research Conference, and he's currently a Ph.D. student in economics at George Mason University. Tate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You've done quite a few pieces on police, and it got to the point where when I put out a request for what are some topics and guests I should have, I had somebody say, well, why the heck are you not having Tate on to talk about all his work on police? And I looked and I thought, how is this happening under my nose? And I have not I haven't followed it enough. So very good, interesting stuff. Let's start with the most controversial. Well, it's hard to say what's the most controversial because when you talk about privatizing police, I guess that would also be controversial. But let's let's situate what you've been writing in the context of the ongoing debate about police in our society because, of course, there's the back the blue signs that we see in a lot of places by people who support the police. And then on the other hand, you have people who say that the police are using excessive force and And of course, from our point of view, we'd say they don't face a market test, and this is also a major problem. Uh, And you've done some stuff on the general question of the war on cops, and there's been some uh, argument that there is a war on cops out there, and that we see this reflected in, let's say, the killings of policemen or the general cultural attitude toward the police and whatever. Uh, What what have you? What's been your the result of your um, investigation into that question? Well, I think the most difficult part of that question is how do we define a war on cops? So you mentioned that one potential measure could be felonious killings of police officers or assaults on law officers. And so one of the things I looked into was just looking at the measures of these things. And the basic picture of what we find is that there's nothing recent really to suggest that there's any type of war on cops happening in terms of uh, law enforcement officers being targeted, in terms of the aggregate numbers. Uh, So then, considering one of the foremost proponents of the War on Cops narrative, uh, Heather McDonald, looking at her book, she doesn't really focus so much on uh, these questions of violence against police officers, but more of the rhetoric. And, well, of course, this is something that's hard to measure, but ultimately what it seems... Uh, her argument really comes down to in defending the police is that really that cops aren't as racist as people uh, seem to think, which seems entirely different than there being a war on cops. So I guess from my perspective, the search continues for evidence that there is in fact a war on cops. Now, there's plenty of stuff we can say about police that 
I think uh, mainstream audience could listen to and nod their heads. And there are people on the progressive side of things could listen to and nod their heads. And we will get to that. But, you know, my libertarian listeners come first. And I want to I want to dive deep into this question of police and what might policing look like in a free society? We would have policing in the same way that we have private security guards now. And by and large, we don't have a problem with that. So what do you think it looks like, given that it, it is somewhat speculative, not entirely, but somewhat speculative. What's the model of policing? What what does the system look like in a market society as opposed to what we have now where it's it's monopolistic and government provided? I think one thing that might be underemphasized by those speculating on what a private system of policing looks like is in terms of what what we do see from private policing in our current world is how much it's bundled with other services. So as many point out about Disney World or the mall, that policing services tend to be provided as a package with these other things. And I think there's too much focus on uh, this model that we have of city police departments instead being provided by a private provider. I imagine that, well, of course, we don't know without a market system, a full market system in the provision of policing. But I imagine that we would see a lot more of this type of bundling, whether it's uh, with a housing association or uh, other services that people enjoy. I think, by the way, that's how a lot of public goods problems would be resolved in a free society is that you would bundle them all together. And when I had Fred Faldvery on many, many episodes ago, he gave the example of a hotel. When you go to a hotel, you don't separately buy the elevator service. It comes bundled in with your experience in the hotel. And likewise, you don't pay for the lobby or the lighting and whatever. These things are all bundled in. And so we would figure out in the market what makes sense to bundle and how the different arrangements would work. And that more or less solves a lot of these problems that non-libertarians throw at us as if they were intractable. Like there's no way, there's no way we could we could resolve this. How would private policing, let's just go right into a matter of, of current controversy. How would private policing help in this situation where you have many black people who feel like the police are hostile to them and they can point to some cases that clearly are pretty uh, gruesome looking to the average observer how does that get changed under a private system and why? Well, I think the most obvious difference is that private police would have to be voluntarily paid by their customers, which is something that's not the case for government police. And I think uh, some potentially fruitful examples that I recently wrote about was in regards to the Starbucks case in Philadelphia. And a point I was trying to make here was that if we compare the response of Starbucks when it faces this public backlash after its use of the police to arrest uh, two African-American men who had been uh, at the Starbucks without purchasing anything, were asked to leave and refused to do so. And, well, critics say this was probably um, racially motivated due to the fact that this is a common thing of people sitting within a Starbucks and just enjoying the atmosphere without purchasing anything. And I'd say you can bet that Starbucks will be very careful in terms of its corporate policy, in terms of how it will use the police in the future regarding these types of things, where it's unclear that the Philadelphia police who actually 
perform the arrest will face any type of cost from this. And so I'd say obviously the biggest difference is in terms of the profit motive that private individuals face in having to continually garner the interest of voluntarily paying customers, unlike government police. I think sometimes we assume that in order for there to be private police, we'd have to already have reached anarcho-capitalism. We'd have to already have smashed the state's monopoly on the use of force. But you point out in one of your articles that this is actually not right, that we could even imagine, even with the state maintaining that monopoly, that you could still have a diverse array of services for policing. And that, I think, is what's hard for people to envision. So what exactly would that look like? I mean, of course we have it now, as you say, with Disney World, they have some company that I'm, I'm sure there's stuff going on with Disney security that would be very interesting to know about that I, as a patron, never even see. And we see it in the shopping mall and, and this and that. But how would that, how could that work in my neighborhood? Right. So, well, one example, I know you had a, uh... Dale Brown of Threat Management Center previously on your show. Yeah. And great. He provides, or one of the services he provides, uh, in addition to his corporate clients, is to uh, neighborhoods. And I believe they uh, contract through some type of homeowners association to provide these types of services. So I think the collective action problem that uh, economists often cite regarding why it's impossible for, uh, individual homeowners to contract for policing services because of the positive externalities that there would be too much free riding really isn't the case. I think that the non-excludability of policing services is much overstated. And so, yeah, I don't think this would be much of a problem for you as a homeowner um, in terms of obtaining these services on the market. The thing is, let's say I didn't have to worry about a government um, I mean, uh, there are things I don't want government doing, but that I do want to have done. And let's say if I was talking about uh, crime prevention, generally what I want is I, I don't necessarily, it's not so much that I want a private company to come in and nab the criminal once he's in my house, although that would be nice. It's more that I don't want him getting in my house in the first place. And I think with a private company, given that I, I can change I can switch to another company anytime I want to. Anytime I find that that company is engaged in practices that I don't like or they're too intrusive or they're they're skulking around my house too much, I can just get rid of them and get a new one, whereas I couldn't do that with the government police because there's no choice with the government police. So in other words, there are things that I'm okay with a private company doing because I maintain the ability to choose to go in a different direction at some point. So the trouble seems to me is that a private company could do more to prevent crime because I wouldn't really mind if the private company is kind of looking around. If I give them permission to look around on my property and stuff, but but I feel like with the with the government police, this would be viewed some of the in other words, practices that I could accept with a private company would be viewed as civil liberties violations if carried out by the police. I don't know if I explained that well. Yeah, I think you make a really good point here. It's reminiscent of uh, Robert Higgs and his ratchet effect regarding how when government grows, it's very hard to shrink it back to where it was previously. And so once you allow government these uh, ability to intrude on your private space, it's 
really difficult to get them back out of it. Whereas, as you mentioned, with a private company, uh, if you find you don't like that type of intrusion, you can switch providers. Now, you have a theme in some of your writing about how much policing we need. And this is really important. This is where your economics training is really going to serve you well, because I think a lot of people, especially law and order conservatives, think the more the better, because they think we think that's generally true of anything. But I've tried to say that even when you have a an unambiguous good like customer service, it's not true that the more customer service you have, the better, because all the customer service people you're drawing are being drawn away from some other thing that they could do. And maybe we value that higher than we value customer service. Or after a while, I mean, what more could I do with customer service? I could, I could give everybody a massage. I could, and then people would start not liking that. At some point, even something that you perceive as being an unambiguous good, you can have too much of because it necessarily comes at the expense of something else that you're going to begin to value more as you get more of the customer service or whatever it is that you have a, a, a surplus of. So how does that translate into policing? Right. I think Ludwig von Mises has great uh, insights into this with the points he makes about economic calculation. And while his original argument was about uh, economic calculation in the socialist commonwealth, which uh, I'm sure your readers are familiar with this argument, that in the, the socialist state where the government controls uh, all the capital goods, there's no private property in them and therefore no uh, exchange and therefore no prices. And so even if there are uh, markets in consumer goods, the central planner cannot engage in profit and loss calculation and therefore is completely in the dark in how to properly allocate resources. And I apply the same argument to the provision of policing or really any form of public administration works in which it's kind of the inverse where police can measure the costs of their inputs because they have to buy labor and capital in the market, but they're not able to measure the value of their output because they don't make voluntary exchanges. Rather, they get their revenue through coercive means like taxation or civil asset forfeiture. And so because of this, because they also cannot engage in profit and loss calculation, they can't know the value of their output. However, they decide to allocate that, whether it's to solving thefts or uh, preventing other types of crime. And so in this case, even though, yes, we we like the at least some of the output, presumably, that police provide, we can't measure the trade-offs because of this lack of calculation. And so, as you point out, this is very much a problem of government policing, that we cannot measure the value of their output, and we can't know what trade-offs we're making by having more public safety, even if it is an unambiguous good. And then once we do have it, then deciding how to allocate it, what kind of crime should they be investigating with how many resources? Now, I can't do that right now because there's no, as you say, there's no profit and loss mechanism. But I'll tell you something. I would be willing to bet that uh, with 99% certainty that the way they allocate resources now is extremely suboptimal, to put it mildly, that you've got police monitoring streets that are barely used to try to catch speeders, while meanwhile the number of murders that go solved is shockingly low. I, that has to be a bad allocation of resources. Right, when you think about it from their perspective. Um, from their perspective, it's <laughs> not right. Yeah. yeah, they respond to incentives. They... Uh, there's not much revenue in solving murders where there is for catching speeders, there is for finding drug dealers who have 
or potential drug consumers who have things to confiscate. And so they respond to the incentives just like everyone else. And also they don't, to some degree, they have to worry about reputation because individual people might wind up on the chopping block. But the whole agency is a monopoly. So whether you like them or you don't like them, they're still going to collect the tax revenue. Whereas private firms have to do have to worry about their reputations. And if they're responsible for using deadly force in a case where it's clearly not warranted, this is going to be a big problem for them. Now, but let me give you an opportunity to answer the kind of argument that a left progressive might make, which would be that much of what you say makes a great deal of sense, but we know how capitalists are and what would happen if capitalists do what is in their nature, namely to hire if, – if they get to choose the police in effect that they're going to be using, couldn't they just hire police who will just arbitrarily go around the, cracking the skulls of troublemakers? Isn't that what we would expect from capitalists? How do we prevent a dystopia like that? Well, as you mentioned, reputation is a very important thing. Um, as I mentioned, Starbucks doesn't want to, I mean, even in their case of a relatively uh, minor uh, case of in, really enforcing their property rights, that they have to consider what impact this will have among customers who frequent Starbucks. And if they're going to maintain those relationships, they can't just be cracking skulls arbitrarily. And I think a further point that's important is the legal privileges that police officers enjoy um, through things like their union contracts or through statute like the state law enforcement officer bills of rights, which protects not, well, not only the police department, but individuals from certain outcomes. Like, for example, some of these uh, collective bargaining agreements allow police, after being involved in an officer-involved shooting, to have this cooling-off period for 48 hours or more in which they don't have to give a testimony. Uh, this time is ostensibly supposed to be for the purpose of obtaining a lawyer, but it allows them to get their story straight. It allows them to see what's in news reports so they that they their testimony can be consistent with those, whereas... For the rest of us, any non-police officer, we would be interrogated right away. And so, in addition just to the market incentives, these legal privileges that police officers enjoy make it very, very hard to see why one would consider a private business, unless they really know nothing about how actual government police operate, to think that they might be more dangerous or less accountable to people than the government police are. Can you say something about police unions? Because you have an interesting article suggesting that police unions may have, again, from their point of view, they work very well. But from the point of view of the public, they may have a detrimental effect. Yeah. So as I mentioned, one of these uh, topics I've been interested in is regarding these protections that police unions are able to get, both through their collective bargaining agreements and through statutes. And as I mentioned, some of these have to do with interrogations or delaying interrogations. Um, some of them have to do with the interrogations themselves. Uh, for example, some police departments uh, must inform a police officer before they investigate him of all the evidence against him. Or in how they conduct an interrogation, they may only have one interrogator at a time, thus precluding any good cop, bad cop routine that we see in movies, uh, presumably that might be a, an effective interrogation technique. Um, but they also have protections like um, 
if a police officer has some type of disciplinary record, that this will be uh, expunged after a certain amount of time. And this can be important because a lot of them also enjoy uh, arbitration or if they are disciplined, either through firing or suspension, they can appeal this disciplinary decision to an independent arbitrator. And almost every time, the arbitrator will consider their previous work history. And if this, uh, any of these complaints, either sustained or unsustained against them, are not present, this can make the difference between uh, sustaining a firing or reinstating an officer. And so it's the economic analysis is that, well, of course, it's obvious why police officers may enjoy this, but politicians may also enjoy this too, in that if we consider these these types of protections as a form of compensation, similar to how uh, university professors enjoy tenure, where all else equal, you may be able to pay a professor less with the option of tenure. So in that way, politicians like these protections because they are in a sense budget neutral, but from the police officer's perspective, they are an increase in pay. But these costs that really come home to roost later in the form of police officers you can't fire, or they're transferred on to whoever is the victim of this police officer's brutality who can't be fired. And so it's the point of that is police unions all serve this purpose. And I also connect this back to the lack of economic calculation, where a competitive service a competitive policing service may have some type of protections. We could imagine, say, a private university system offering tenure, but those universities offering too many of these non-monetary uh, forms of compensation may be outcompeted by those who uh, offer a level of compensation that's more in line with the product they're offering. But again, since police departments are unable to engage in calculation, they can't measure the true cost of these protections. And so they can continue along with these types of protections where a competitive system might not enable that. Let me ask you like a big picture question. The average person listening to what it is that you might recommend may find it radical, even though they may think all your complaints are justified and your insights are are very significant. They still will feel like, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't know. And for all its faults, the current system at least works tolerably well to the point where most of us are able to live a fairly civilized existence. So what would you say to them to make them willing to consider the possibility of a more, you know, a radical market approach to this question that they would not consider otherwise? Well, I think an argument that's uh, been convincing to me is somewhat like John Hazness's The Obviousness of Anarchy in which he points out that we enjoy all these forms of private security or private arbitration already, and we just really don't notice it. So in that way, the more we don't notice it, I think demonstrates how seamlessly it, it fits into our life. Whereas if you think about the fact that, as often is pointed out, that there's three to four times as many private police officers to every public police officer, we almost never hear about them. They're really frankly, out of view, whereas probably most of us have had some type of bad experience with the police, with a police officer, maybe um, either in the form of poor service or uh, being unjustifiably stopped or even worse. And so I think it's really kind of a, say, a Friedrich Bastiat type thing where uh, it's what we don't see that 
is what makes us not realize just how how well private policing can work. What got you interested in this topic originally? Well, <laughs> it's interesting. As an undergrad, I had originally studied criminal justice, being interested in perhaps becoming a police officer. And uh, around that time, I had first read Rothbard and decided this wasn't for me and maintained this as a research interest and decided I uh, thought economics was a better route to, for study and uh, for vocation. Well, good for you. And you, now you can do both things in effect. You can study economics and have economics shed light on the issue of policing. Well, I'm going to I appreciate your time today. I'm going to, of course, link to your article archive at Mises.org. You've written, I think, beyond just Mises. So I'll try and link to, in general, what you've written on the subject of policing. I'll put that up at tomwoods.com slash 1172. If you're, I don't think you're on Twitter. Uh, is there any other thing you'd like me to link to? Um, no, I think that'll do. Now, you see, it just goes to show by not being on Twitter, you have the time to write all these articles. You notice <laughs> how I don't write any articles anymore? Because I'm spending my time like an idiot over there on Twitter fighting battles that you are wisely avoiding. And I appreciate that. But anyway, it's really great stuff. And, I, and I'm glad we had a chance to talk. And now the reading assignment for folks listening is to go to tomwoods.com slash 1172 and get clicking and read more of what Tate has to say. Tate, uh, best of luck to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. All right, everybody, tomorrow I think I'm going to do an episode with just me talking, no guest, and I'm going to look through this Supreme Court decision about the cake baker and whether or not it was okay for him to refuse to bake a particular cake. So I want to talk about the decision, the dissents. I'm going to read through all this and talk to you about it, sort of so you don't have to. We've probably all read at least one article or something on it in the newspaper or online or something, but I'm going to try and go through the text of everything and share some thoughts with you and then give a libertarian perspective on it after talking about what the justices have to say. So I think that ought to be an interesting one. So if you like those solo episodes, then you'll definitely want to tune in. Make sure you subscribe, by the way, and tell your friend, you know, for Doggone it, you have libertarian friends, don't you? You want them to, ha to have some learning. Well, how do they get some learning? They go to tomwoods.com slash iTunes. They subscribe to the Tom Woods Show, and just knowledge just gets infused into their brains. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.